after the service, the boxes will be loaded into the vehicle, but before we have that, we will have a prayer concerning these boxes, and uh, we'll pray and ask God to just use these in a mighty way to, to not only bless the children, but to uh, touch their lives as far as the Word of God being placed in them and tracks and different things of that sort. And God will, uh, God will be the emphasis of this. They'll, they'll recognize that. So <clears throat> if I forget, y'all remind me to do that at the end, okay? Okay, let's turn to uh, Judges chapter 13. This is going to be a series of messages, probably a big portion of the uh, uh, Judges and, you know, any part of the Old Testament is on this character here, Samson. And so uh, we'll be looking at him. The title of the message is Be Ye Separate. You've heard it mentioned, be in the world, but not of the world. And so we want to look at what that means. And we'll see a lot of what that means through uh, this character, Samson. I don't know if you've, uh, as you're turning to Judges chapter 13, we'll be looking tonight at primarily at verses 1 through 14, but I don't know if you've ever uh, seen this personally or you've seen pictures of it or maybe uh, in some movie, but uh, a guy wearing a black hat, long beard, dressed in black, riding in a black buggy, drawn by a horse. You've seen this? They have a community. And the community uh, lives this way. Uh, there's, these are families who live in this century, but seem to live as though they are living in another century. They are families who have dedicated themselves to being separate from the world. The world that they're living in. And in the name of religion, they have turned their backs on things like automobiles, electricity, bright colors, and other things of this sort. Matter of fact, if a person put rubber wheels on their buggy, they were considered compromising with the world. Worldliness was creeping into their life, so to speak. If they compromised in that way, then next they would, uh, you know, be putting rubber wheels on their steel-wheeled tractors. And boy, that was bad. And then the real sign of compromise would be to buy a car, all black, of course, and paint the chrome black. These groups demonstrate great sincerity, though, in following their beliefs. But in that sign of a deep sincerity or personal faith, you know, was it a personal faith in Jesus Christ or was it more a personal faith in separation from the culture? You, you have to make that distinction. We don't know. Is this what it means to be separated from the world? Live like that. What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? Well, we know the, that the Bible speaks in direct and strong language about Christian relationships in the world. It says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
What does that mean, though? What about G, uh, James and what he says about relationships to the world? He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world constitutes himself an enemy of God. But what is being friend with the world? friends with the world? One could say that the world can be very dangerous, especially to a believer in his relationship to God. But how? Because that's not all that the Bible says about the world and the believer. The, Bible, the Lord says he calls us to be what? The salt and the what of the world? Light of the world. Now, he's calling us to live in the world for his glory. And salt is only valuable when it what? Leaves its shaker and permeates on whatever it needs to. Light is only helpful when it shines in what? darkness so that means associating with immoral and sinful people is part of our life but how can we associate with them and not assimilate into them how do we do that without allowing the world to permeate us which unfortunately it happens so we uh, so often and and it's not an easy thing people how do we put those facts together in the world but be separated from it, involved in the world, but not living or being conformed to it, using the world, but not making friends of it. Wow. Sounds easy, easy on paper, but what does it involve? It is not an easy thing to resolve. I want to share that with you. Many believers have emphasized one extreme or the other. And by that I mean one usually begins by calling themselves and others to be separated from sin. Well, that's fine. Next, they call Christians to be separated from specific practices. That may be fine and that may not be so fine. Many times those things that we should not practice are not specifically condemned in the Bible. That's the unfortunate thing. We have our don'ts list, and those don'ts list may not involve what the Bible says don't do. It may just be our preferences. And so they're just those things that we've found personally to be dangerous. And finally, they call Christians to be separated from sinners. It's a downward progression. And if we're not careful... That's where we end up. They think that to be wise as believers means having nothing, little or nothing to do with unbelievers. So separate them means to be isolated, living in a bubbled world, enclosed by the world, or from the world. There is the other extreme, though, and there are those Christians who want nothing to do with that lifestyle. And unfortunately, this is what happens a lot of times when we respond to something in reaction we go all the way to the other extreme in trying to say we're not going to have anything to do with that that is wrong and this happens so often this is a big cycle that goes on and it gets worse and worse it seems like as time goes on and the other this uh, this end this other end of the spectrum wants to do nothing or have nothing to do with that kind of lifestyle they realize isolation is really a distortion to biblical truth. And so they want to take seriously a believer's mandate 
that says to go into the world, to reach the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many times they overreact, though. That's where it comes. They overreact to uh, a position of assimilation from isolation. Their concern about associating, associating with non-believers becomes so huge that many end up assimilating the values and lifestyle of unbelievers into their life. They just assimilate into it. Too often associating with sinners has men associating with sin. So they have lost their Christian distinctiveness and doing many works on on the emerging church and the emerging movement that came up back in the early 2000s. This was what happened with that group. They moved so far into saying you've got to assimilate that they assimilated their lifestyle into the culture, into the world. Biblical separation is hard to find. Isolation, not assimilation, is the answer. We are not to be hermits sealed off from the world, nor are we to be conforming to our environment, changing with every little thing. We are to get the correct answer, and that correct answer is only from the Word of God, but it's not easy to reconcile and to understand exactly how to live out. So we must be very careful in what we do and not to enter it with preconceived ideas and not to react against one side or the other because we usually end up to the far extremes as we do that. We need to carefully, by way of the Holy Spirit, allowing us to understand the Word of God, read it, pray about it, and live it. Samson's life illustrates many of the biblical principles, both positive and negative, dealing with biblical separation. Samson was largely a failure. We know that from his life. Yet the failures of his life can be very instructive, and hopefully they will through this study. So first of all, I want us to look in chapter 13 and, and let us begin reading. It says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. That's very important. 40 years, longest period of time. 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had, be had bore no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren. That's very interesting. I want you to look at that. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. First of all, he says, you are barren. Well, she knew she was barren, but he was doing that for a purpose. And I bore no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall be or come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines then the woman came and told her husband saying wow you won't believe it a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God very important like the angel of God 
very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God. Here, very carefully understand this. This is important. From the womb to the day of his death. Now, two things very important about that we'll talk about in just a few moments. That is, number one, God is calling this person to be this way. It is not, if you go back to Numbers, and we'll look at that in just a few moments, Nazarite, one of the uh, uh, qualifications was it was to be spontaneous. It was to be a calling from the heart. It was to be voluntary. This is, he's telling him, this is what he's going to be doing. And he says, from the womb to the day of his death. And also, that, that was just temporary calling, Nazarite. We'll look at the qualifications in just a few moments. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom thou hast sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of the Lord came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. He came again to the lady. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah rose and followed his wife. They quickly went there. I'm putting that in there. And when he came to the man, he said to, the, to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, Look at there, I am. Wow. Who says that? Whose name is that? And then he goes on. And Manoah said, now, when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. Why the woman? Because part of the calling had to do with the preparation, her preparation in pregnancy. So, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine or drink wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that you may prepare a kid for you. Or we may prepare a kid for you. In other words, we want something special for you. We know that you are special. We're going to stop there and we're going to Look at the first point of this message, which is the times for this man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this time. I thank you for these that have come out. I pray that you'll just enlighten our minds and our eyes to your truth, that only, the, the way that only you can. I pray that you'll deal with our hearts and our lives the only way that you can. And Lord, that you'll show us what needs to be done, what we can learn from this to apply to our lives to be stronger as believers in Jesus Christ, to, to be in the world but not of the world. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 13.1, Now the sons of Israel did again did evil. Here it is, did again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now this is one sad picture because we'll come back to this again. 
Do you hear any crying out from Israel during this time? Mm. Told you the cycle gets worse and worse, doesn't it? Gets further and further away. Once again, we, we find this dreary pattern repeated. And in Judges chapter 13, we have the seventh cycle of Israel downward spiral into two things, anarchy and apostasy. Moving away from God and his principles and how he wants us to live and falling away from God in doing so. So the times have been fairly peaceful as far as we know. We have Judge Zephthah that we just finished studying and he was called to fight the uh, Ammonites and he did. They called out for a judge, for a deliverer and and God sent him, and he, uh, God worked through him, and he delivered Israel from the enemy. He defeated them. So uh, we see that he served as judge for six years, and we don't see of any more wars during that time. Nothing is mentioned. Then came Ibsen, and he was considered a minor judge because when you only have one or two sentences about a person then because of the lack of material you're it's not because you're less it's just there's not that much material in there so he was a minor judge he served for seven years nothing is said about that except that during these three minor judges that I'm going to mention here we do see that there was prosperity we see that there was writing of uh Animals that uh, required having money and this type of thing, so they were enjoying themselves. Uh, and after uh, uh, Ebsen, we see that Elon came along, and he was uh, he served for ten years. No wars we know of there. And Abdon was the third one. He served for eight years. So with this time, for the most part, there was prosperity. And there were new, you know, there was peace. So often, this is the unfortunate thing. So often, with prosperity and peaceful times, comes anarchy and apostasy. Now, what happens is uh, that the pressures around begin to take people away, and the lifestyle around begin to take people away from God instead of closer to God. You're living in a fairly peaceful time, so you're more concerned about, you know, the ins and outs of the family, getting them to the ball games and to school and everything else and, and being involved in everything that you can and keeping them busy so that they will uh, stay out of trouble. And then there's the time of, okay, we are living in this house and we're moving from this house to this house and we want to move here uh, over here on the lake so that where the other people live so that our kids can be with them and they can enjoy themselves on the lake and, and just, you know, skiing and, and doing uh, fun things with other people. And, and you're just doing that. And, and so uh, you, you begin to see a lot of uncertainties and balancing your bank book and, and your expenses. And, and before you know it, you're so busy. Not with activities necessarily that are are evil or bad, but these activities are so, uh, so much occupying your time that it pulls you away from God. That's, that's so easy for us to, for that to happen, for us to see. 
and for us to experience. I don't care who it is. For me, as pastor, for you, I mean, I can, I can be involved in a lot of other things that pull me away from the necessities, that I, I mean, the priorities I really need to have. And that is spending time with God in the Word of God. Just like you can also. It is so easy. And so what happens is God becomes less and less of a reality during that time. We don't want to admit that, but it does happen. This was happening with Israel. People look more to what? Human resources for support to meet their needs than to God. I mean, we all, I, let's just think a moment. Don't we all do that pretty much so? I mean, it's easy to fall into that. Satan knows this. I mean, it's an old game with him. He doesn't mind if we're going through a lot of prosperity. He knows that prosperity will, and peace will a lot of times pull us further away from God, quicker away from God than persecution. Persecution a lot of times refines a person, doesn't it? Because why? Because you are hurting and you are in dire need of help. And who do you look to? You find out that what you've been relying on is no longer what you should be relying on and that you cry out to God. That's why in third countries and other countries like that, you see a lot of revivals breaking forth and you don't see it here in America or in Europe or in other places that are experiencing fairly peaceful times. Now, I'm not saying that you have to have difficult times to walk with God. It takes a, a very strong commitment to day in and day out walk when, with the Lord when, when things are going fairly easy. It really does. And this is what is basically happening to the Israelites during this time. God was working, though, to get their attention, to get them to refocus from themselves to him. So as punishment for their idolatry, the Lord allowed the Philistines to oppose Israel for 40 years. Now, this is the longest recorded oppression that Israel experienced. Now, who were the Philistines? Well, first of all, they were forced out of their homeland in Greece and the Algerian Sea. Later, they attacked Egypt around 1200 B.C. and uh, defeated in that. They moved north and settled on the coastal plain of Palestine, where they organized a pentopolis or a confederation of uh, five cities, Gaza, uh, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and uh, Gath and Ekron. And so, uh, as, you know, we have an earlier reference to them in Judges uh, in, with Shamgar in Judges 3.31. But now, it, it, you know, it's becoming Israel's fierce and foreboding enemy where they were just kind of, you know, they've been fairly peaceful up to now. And 40-year period of oppression was not to end until the battle of Mizpah in 1 Samuel 7. You, you can read about that when Samuel uh, led the Israelites to a victory over the Philistine foes. Uh, so a close examination of the passage before us reveals a sad and solemn omission. As I mentioned earlier, if you saw this, 
you did not see them crying out to God for help. Why not? Every other point in the study of Judges, the Israelites reached a time of desperation. Then they repented and they cried out to God for help. But why not here? That is not the case here. If you see this, the people were apparently, and this is the sad thing about it. This is why we need to be very careful about what we're, what's going on around us and to walk circumspectly in this world, as Ephesians says in chapter 4. Or, yeah, chapter 4. Uh, he says, be, uh, walk carefully, in other words. We are to be very careful in our walk with the Lord because the people were apparently unaware of the dangers that were around them and they, and, you know, they were enjoying the time of national affluence, it seems. And so the rule of the Philistines at this time had not come to its cruel force. It was building up towards that, but it had not come to its climax here. And the Israelites not only accepted their rule, uh, but they also accepted the lifestyle to move, I mean, to assimilate into their lives. And that was a life of apathy. And even, you know, they, they did that to a point, if you'll remember that in Judges chapter 15, that um, they, uh, they pushed it to, to the extremes to the point where they resent Samson's exploits to deliver them even. That's sad. When someone's rising up. But let me ask you. In our world with churches today and believers. We need to be very careful of this. Because you see when someone wants to make things right. Whether it's a government official or whatever. And they're going along with the law and the law of the land and they're wanting to abide by that and other people have compromised with it and they kind of have assimilated into uh, their their life a, 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 a kind of lifestyle of deception thinking that what they're doing is okay and so when someone rises up or some people rise up and say this is wrong, then people fight against those people because it might hurt their lifestyle and it might hurt them in their convenience and, and the way that they're bringing in all their prosperity and their easiness in life. And so they get ugly and it's an ugly fight. And if we're not careful as Christians, we have become comfortable also in our lifestyle and we rise up to the wrong people or with the wrong people. And so we need to make sure that we stand true to God's word. And the, uh, the Lord, therefore, did not send a national deliverer. They didn't cry for one. But instead raised up a man. He saw their need, but they didn't see their need. And it was a, a one-man war, if you will. And he recognized the danger of compromise. And so 
He was not perfect, but he was a man that God had raised up to deliver them, to have their eyes awakened to. They would not, and they did not. They were just continuing to compromise with the enemy. Judges 13.1 tells us a few essential facts about Samson's life that need to be understood. Samson was a unique person. He had a unique birth. In verse 2, we meet Samson's parents, and Samson's parents lived in Zorah, a town that was located on the border between Dan and Judah. And the majority of the tribe of Dan had, had moved north. They had moved out from there. Why? Because it was an area, it was a border city wedged between Israel and the Philistines. And we can say that Samson came from an area that was very familiar with oppression to or from the Philistines. And like Sarah and Elizabeth, the wife of Manoah was uh, barren and childless, it says in verse 3. He says, then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren without child. Hebrew, for a Hebrew woman, that was a shattering and shameful condition. They hated it. Because why? Because they, it was an honor for them to have children. Psalms tells us about that. And, and they, uh, they looked at that in passing on their lineage. And so they looked at it as being shameful and and, uh, you know, uh, shattering. And Samson's parents seemed to be genuinely godly, though, uh, in a time of apostasy. Th those characteristics were very rare and unique. This couple did not go unnoticed by God. In his grace, he reached into, down to their lives, and suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and announced, Behold, now you are barren and have bore no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Much like a physician. Like I was telling you earlier, look at the order that he's saying. Why are you saying you, I'm barren? I know I'm barren. Well, much like a physician tells a parent first, uh, or a patient first of all, the nature of their illness before reassuring them of the remedy, so the Lord reminded Manoah's wife of her condition before promising her a son. He wanted her to know that this is going to be a miracle and this miracle was going to be from God. It could only happen from God. By showing his knowledge of her condition, he prepared her heart to accept by faith. I know your condition. Where are you from? Who are you? I know your condition. So he was preparing her heart for what was to, about to happen. To accept by faith his assurance, his announcement that she was going to have a child. Now what happens? Amazed and overwhelmed, Manoah's wife rushed off to tell her husband about this one thing she had been talking about. She called him a man of God, in other words, a prophet, and that he looked like an angel. He had an awesome appearance. Then the woman came and told her husband, it says, saying, a man of God came to me. And his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from. Nor did I tell him his name. Uh, he tell me my, his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now you shall not drink wine nor strong drink nor eat any unclean thing. For the day shall be a, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb 
to the day of his death. It's interesting that Manoah did not pass this off as some, you know, emotional moment from her. I mean, here she was, she'd been out in the hot day and, I mean, a hot field and, and uh, all day in that hot weather. And, and uh, you know, he could have said, hey, woman, come over here to the shaded area and cool down. Now, you've gotten overheated uh, and you're a little delirious. But he didn't. Manoah's response was one of belief and prayer. That's amazing. That tells you somewhat of what kind of people they were. He prayed for an instant replay. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom thou hast sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. In verse 8. And that was exactly what happened. The angel of the Lord appeared again to the woman first, and she ran with excitement and got her husband and brought him there. And um, the angel didn't appear to give any added information. It seems that God at this point wanted them to know something and something very important, very special. And that was something awesome was about to take place. And so uh, he was going to supernaturally intervene. It had to be a supernatural intervention uh, in the uh, body of a barren woman. And it's uh, like Sarah and Elizabeth. Uh, This wife of Manoah, she uh, was barren and childless, her, her condition, a tragedy in Israel. But like Sarah and Elizabeth, it was about to change. What an awesome gift. Then Manoah rose and followed his wife. And when they came to the man, he said to them, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Ah, oh, there's the I am. Then Manoah said, Now, when you, your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. That's the emphasis. I want her, I want the emphasis to be on this supernatural birth. I want you to understand it's supernatural birth. I want you to understand that this needs to be carried out to the T. For this child, it's important. So, she should not eat anything that comes from the uh, vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. So, the angel of the Lord, we know when the angel of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament, who is this referring to? Referring to Jesus, isn't it? And so, it's none other than the Lord appearing to communicate his will to Manoah's wife and Manoah. It's the Lord God taking a temporary human form. And the angel did three things. He declared his name. Look down in verse 18. Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is what? What? Wonderful. Where is that in the Bible? A lot of places, but where in particular? Isaiah. We we speak about this at Christmas, don't you? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Wow. Not only that, but he will be wonderful. He'll do wonderful things. He worked wonders. He did what his name suggested. And number three, look at his miraculous disappearance in verse 22. For we have seen God. Wow. As he disappeared 
as they prepared that sacrifice. Mm. Well, look at his unique lifestyle. We need to look at a few things. This will help us with our separation here. He said central to the announcement of the angel was that the son would be a Nazarite, one obligated to keep the law of the Nazarite vow. Numbers, if you want to turn to number six, verses one through six, or one through eight, the vow was to be taken by a person voluntarily. That's very important. For a limited period of time in order to fulfill some special service to Yahweh. The word Nazarite means separated or consecrated. Uh, you know, uh, the heavenly messenger instructed that the child here uh, was to demonstrate his separation to the Lord by keeping the three requirements of Nazarite vow. Abstain from the fruit of the vine, indicating a life that is simple. That's what it indicates, people. You're not talking about getting drunk or anything here. The emphasis here is it emphasized a life that would just be simple, humble to the Lord. Now we, you know, we can talk about drinking later on on, on uh, other occasions, but this is not the emphasis here. The emphasis here is live a simple life. And <clears throat> not only that, he was refrained from cutting his hair as a public sign of his vow to God. That was very important. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. He was to avoid contact with a dead body. He couldn't be a mortician. No, I'm just throwing that out. An act that would disqualify him. See, it would disqualify him from what? Worship. Tabernacle worship. So, let's look at it. It was to be voluntary. A vow that the Lord, uh, that was, uh, you know, this was a vow that, uh, the, the Lord worked in a person's life and it was to be personal and, and spontaneous. It was to be motivated out of love and faith to the Lord. It was to be purposeful. In number 6-2, a phrase is repeated over and over again, dedicated to the Lord or separated himself to the Lord. The purpose of the vow was for a man to cut himself off from the other things so that he could devote himself especially to the Lord. Now I want you to look at this. Devoting yourself to the Lord. When things come between us and the Lord that shouldn't come and pull us away, we need to look at these things. You know, we can relate and, and apply these things to our lives today. And the vow was symbolic, abstaining from the fruit of the vine. It's not to say that anything was sinful about the, the fruit, uh, whether it be grapes or raisins, but all those things were signs of luxurious living at that time. And so during the time of the vow, he was to live a simple life like John the Baptist. And it was uh, certainly not wrong to, he was not to cut his hair. And it certainly wasn't wrong to cut his hair. I was looking at an old uh, directory today. We were trying to look up a person's uh, name that was here years ago when I first came. And I ran across a picture of Tank. Tank, boy, I tell you what, not only was your, your hair a different color then, but it was, it was a lot longer there. <laughs> and so uh, it, there's nothing wrong, though, with uh, uh, having a haircut. We see that um, uh, Paul talks about that in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, so it was 
what he was trying to do is he was trying to show us that this was a public sign, a public sign of his vow. When people saw that, they recognized that. He was dedicated unto the Lord. And then the vow was to be, uh, you know, avoiding contact with a dead person. This was a sign of God's preeminence in a person's life. In other words, contact with death made a person unfit for tabernacle, which in turn, uh, you know, brought, took him away from the concept of having that contact and that fellowship with the Lord. And so uh, he would make that emphasis not to have any contact with dead persons so that they knew that he had that fellowship, that constant. Uh, he was a man called of God to have that fellowship with God, that constant fellowship with God. And the vow was temporary. A Nazarite vow was not to be a lifelong condition, and it was to be a vow that lasted for a period of time. Now, the angel made it clear that Samson was to be a Nazarite at his birth, from womb to the day of his death. All his life was to be a man marked by dedication to Yahweh. It wasn't his spontaneity and his commitment, his love, and his faith to the Lord, all of a sudden I want this uh, to carry out a, a specific purpose. It was, God was saying, you are going to have a child that's going to be committed from day one to the last day. So, Samson was to be bound by all these obligations. He was to be a Nazarite, but with a difference from birth to death. All his life, live under the vow. There was nothing temporary about it. And you know, we can look at that and we can relate it to our life. It, there's nothing temporarily about being called as a believer in Jesus Christ, is it? I mean, it's from uh, the day of birth, being born again, to the day of death, leaving to go to be with the Lord. It's to be constant. It's to be continual. And so even the mother was required to refrain from drinking strong drink or eating unclean foods while carrying the child lest she become contaminated with that which would violate the Nazarite vow. That's how serious it was. And being called as a Christian, being uh, uh, born again as a Christian, it, I think we need to look at this vow. Not that we're Nazarites and not that we go along with that, but in relating and, and seeing the parallel in some of this stuff, we need to understand that we are to be committed. We're to take it serious. Samson was a Nazarite, not by personal commitment, but by a divine command. That was his difference. His separation was not voluntary, voluntary, but commanded by God. Now, with saying all that, I want to end with this. We also are to be in the world, but not of the world. And we need to take that serious. How do we do that, though? It's tough. You better seek God's guidance and his wisdom. It's not rationalizing. It's not listening to something that makes us feel more comfortable today and what we're, because of what we're doing to, to accept somebody's teaching that's contrary to what we've, taught, we've heard in the past. It's looking at the Word of God and seeing what the Word of God says, how we're to live. We don't have God... Um, directing us then 
If, if that's not there, then what's going more likely happen is we're going to move into one or the other extreme. We're going to move into the camp of isolation from the world. And we're going to have our rules of do's and don'ts. And, and pretty soon we'll get to the point where we don't even want to have anything to do with uh, non-believers. And we forget about the great calling. Oh, we pray for them, but that's it. And then there's the camp of assimilation in the world. We re respond and we react against that camp so much so that we move the other way and we move the other way so much so that we think, well, you know, to get these people in, we've got to make them feel comfortable so we've got to accept their lifestyle and we become a part of their lifestyle. And we become like them. Simple as that. So separation from the world is living in the world but yet being separated from it is not an easy thing. You have to be walking with the Lord to understand that. It is a commitment to the Lord that is motivated by love and faith. And the commitment that is motivated by love and faith causes one to desire to please the Lord instead of pleasing yourself. That's the key. To be obedient to him, honoring him with a life that pleases him, as Colossians says. I pray, Paul says, for you that, that you know, you'll please the Lord in all things. The Lord said in his high priestly prayer, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify, separate, in other words, them in the truth. That's how you can live in the world but not be of the world by being sanctified in the truth, knowing the truth. Don't go my, by my list of do's and don'ts. Check out my do's and don'ts to see if they're according to the word of God. Thy word is truth. It's not my word, it's, it's God's word. We're to be in the world but not of the world. We are not to assimilate into its ways. Those that lead us into an ungodly lifestyle, into a life that, that takes our allegiance from, away from God. We're to be distinct. We're to be proud that we're distinct. Not proud in the wrong way, but proud. Yes, people will make fun of us and, and make you know, uh, light of what we do and, and uh, ridicule us many times, but... Some people, there are some that the Holy Spirit will use us with that will take notice of our lifestyle and our commitment. And they will be interested in that. But not only by living a life of don'ts. Don't just have a list where I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't drink, I don't date guys that do and, and this type of thing. You know, hey, it, yeah. Uh, it's not that. It's living a life with the Lord where people see the joy of that relationship in you. Did people see the joy of relationship of Jesus Christ in us? I mean a joy that doesn't come by compromising and living like the world, but a joy that comes by being in the world and just enjoying the Lord and maybe being around unbelievers and letting them know about the Lord, whether they accept it or not, but in a loving way and, and just enjoying it. 
and they see a unique love about us, a, a, a unique faith about us, a unique commitment about us that says, hmm, wow, how can they do that? And also we need to realize, have we moved to one condition or the one area, one extreme or the other? Have we moved to assimilating that we people don't see a different kind of lifestyle at all by us? And they're not attracted to the Lord. But have we moved to the others where we live a life of don'ts and we've isolated ourselves to the point? How many friends, acquaintances? I'm not talking about going out and smoking pot together and all that kind of stuff and sitting down and talking with them about the Lord. Give me a weed, you know, let's, let's talk about the Lord. I'm talking about how many people, how many? We talked about this on Wednesday night. I want us to be honest. Shows us how far we moved probably to the other list, the other extreme. How many lost people do we have as friends? How many people do we know? You know what that requires? That requires getting out. Meeting people. Talking with them. Befriending them. And living your life still before them. But letting them know that you care for them. Let's bow our heads in prayer.